Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. The combination of pandemic and cost of living crisis will create a long shadow. Millions of households will be in that shadow and will try and cope the best they can. So let's be honest about where we are now and let's be honest about the pressure that households are under. We need to maintain that focus, particularly on people who have fallen into debt and ensure that the help is ongoing so that this shadow of the cost of living crisis and the pandemic doesn't go on for years and years and years. Today's guest outlines what UK lawmakers have missed in their efforts to address the fallout from the country's cost of living crisis. He details what policy changes the next government should prioritise to prevent long-term damage arising from the aftermath of the crisis. And he explains how the Financial Conduct Authority's new consumer-focused rules should best be implemented to support financial services firms' most vulnerable clients. Peter Tusson has spent two decades advising on mortgage, credit and related consumer policy. Since 2012, he has lobbied for regulatory reforms to help consumers in financial difficulty as head of policy at Step Change Debt Charity. Hi, Peter. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with a brief overview of Step Change for those who might not be familiar with it and also a little bit about your role there. Thanks. Step Change Debt Charity. I've been going for about 30 years now. And as our name implies, we provide debt advice and debt solutions. So people who are struggling with financial difficulties come for help last year. We helped out 180,000 people. So it reflects the high number of people that have a need for debt advice, which has been the case for some time. Debt can happen to anyone. What pushes people over the edge is a life event, a shock, like falling ill, losing your job, relationship breaks. Down. Those things are big triggers of financial difficulty. But though that can happen to anyone, what we see amongst our clients is a strong patterning towards people on lower incomes, towards women, 63, 64% of our clients are women, towards renters rather than homeowners. We only see about 14, 15% of our clients are homeowners and towards younger adults. So we see relatively few people above pension age. We see a growing proportion of people between 18 and 25. So vulnerability to debt is not evenly spread. So there's a lot of social policy and a lot of thinking about and understanding the nature of financial vulnerability and what causes that playing underneath the problems we see when people finally come to debt advice. 
So my role of step change, I have the grand title of head of policy, research and public affairs. So broadly, the main thing that step change does is provide advice and debt solutions. But we also do policy and campaigning work to try and look at some of the causes of debt problems to see what can be done to make it less likely that people will fall into debt but also to look at better ways to help people who are in financial difficulty to reduce the harm that debt causes. So one of the problems we see that when people come into debt advice, very often their mental and physical health have been affected. It can affect their relationships. It affects work life. So debt has a lot of social costs. We did a bit of work a few years ago where we estimated for a cohort of about 3 million people in debt produces external social costs in terms of healthcare, housing and homelessness, lost productivity and so on, something like 8 billion in social costs. And that's really my role is to look at how we can develop insight, tell the story about who is experiencing debt and why, and try and find solutions to some of the problems people tell us about to mean that other people are less likely to fall into debt and people who do experience debt problems suffer less harm as a result. Mm -hmm. And what's topping your to-do list currently? So there's quite a lot of things on the to-do list at the moment. So one of the big things is renters' reform bill, which is quite an important piece of legislation. So government has recognised that the private rental market is not what it was in 1988 when the existing legislation came in. And it's not really working for tenants. So it aims to make the market work a bit better. And our concern there is about a third of our clients are in the private rented sector. And what we've seen is with the cost of living crisis, many of our clients, because of the lack of social housing, increasingly look like social tenants in terms of their low-income households or people who are unable to work. They have children, additional vulnerabilities, like mental health, physical disabilities, and so on. But the private rented sector gives them very little protection against eviction because of rent arrears. And private landlords, often small private landlords, are poorly placed to offer the kind of support that social tenants can get from their landlords. So there's some good things in the rent form bill, like getting rid of no-fault evictions. It looks at some of the problems in the market, giving better security for some tenants, but it's not grasping this underlying problem that the private rented sector is housing people increasingly who it's not designed or able to support properly. And government needs to think in housing policy about what do we do about these bunch of people who are living in unaffordable, often poor quality, insecure homes and the effects that that's having on them. So getting that across and trying to get some things in the process of the legislation that can help, like a better support network, like better requirements on landlords to support their tenants, that's something that's quite near the top of our list. Alongside that, we're always interested in consumer credit markets. Consumer credit is a big part of the UK debt story. What's happening now is lots of people borrowing to try and make ends meet using credit to keep up with bills and rent and things like that. So and about half of renters saying they're using credit to keep up with rent, about 7 million people using credit to keep up with bills. The difficulty with this is that credit eats itself. The more you use credit to fill a hole in your budget, the bigger that hole is next month. So before you know it, you're using credit just to repay credit. So that's particularly harmful in terms of the effects on people's mental health, etc. So we're very interested in how the consumer duty that's recently been introduced by the FCA can address problems in financial services generally, but particularly in credit markets and what we would call a financial difficulties journey. So the consumer duty is something that has recently been introduced. It's only about three months old. 
So what the consumer duty should do, if it works, which we hope it will, is basically saying to firms, the requirement is that your products and services will deliver good outcomes for your customers. And the regulator will want to see what firms are doing to ensure that those good outcomes will be delivered. And that means doing things like actually digging into the experience of your clients, doing some research, gathering some data, analyzing it, understanding what's working and not working. So that's one of the things that we hope will be a real game changer. And particularly where we are now in a cost of living crisis, firms should be looking, okay, who is most vulnerable to falling into debt amongst our clients? So what we see at the moment is when people fall into difficulty, they don't approach their lenders for help for various reasons, worries about their credit ratings and other reasons. Their financial difficulties aren't spotted by lenders quickly enough. And people are able to access credit even when it's unaffordable, unsustainable and harmful for them. So there's quite a lot of things there that need to line up, which go across the FCA rulebook, but which are actually perfect for a consumer duty approach for firms to think about their customers who are in financial difficulty, are vulnerable to financial difficulty, and how to have a better journey than the one they've got at the moment. We did a piece of work last year, a good example of this, looking at credit and communications to people in financial difficulty. And what we found is the messages from their lenders that people get when they're struggling. 90% of people say it created negative emotional responses. And what people tend to do is they get frightened. They don't take away a message that help is available. So they disengage and maybe borrow more to deal with unaffordable payment demands, which makes their debt problems worse. So that's another thing that's quite near the top of our list is about how the, the tremendous opportunity of the consumer duty is about how firms think deeper and harder about how their products and services work for their clients, but also the bad things those products can do if they're not designed and delivered well. I guess the third big one is the question of safety nets as well, which is a difficult question. So about a third of our clients, even after debt advice, have what we call a negative or deficit budget. So that means that their income is not enough to meet basic living costs, budgets. Now, there's all sorts of different reasons why people are in deficit budgets, but one of the biggest predictors of being in a deficit budget is being in receipt of universal credit. So about half our clients in receipt of universal credit have a deficit budget after advice. So there's a question there about the way that safety nets are working. Why are we in a place where they cannot pay their basic expenditure even after budgeting counselling is an adequacy issue? Where concerned about that, that's a big social policy issue. There's some real concerns both where people need to draw on support because their work by itself isn't enough to pay for the increased cost of living and where that support is not working to stop people falling into debt. There's some issues there as well about the temporary nature of crisis support, things like the Household Support Fund, which is a localised discretionary pot that people can access for help from local government. Will that be maintained after next April? We hope so. But it probably needs to be better funded. So they're three of the big things that are on our list at the moment. And there's some really big and hard questions for policymakers. And we're not naive. <laughs> the next government after the election, whoever that will be, face real challenges. There are fiscal challenges. Some key markets, labour market, housing market, energy market, all not working as they should do for millions of people. And getting that right and getting the support in place for people to enable them to live until those markets are got right is a real challenge. So we get that. So there are some big issues there, but there are some small bits and pieces that policymakers can do now, which will help. 
Okay, well, there's a lot to unpick there. We're speaking today as the cost of living crisis, as you've mentioned, is deepening for some of those on the lowest incomes. More people are being dragged into debt and having to turn to food banks to survive. This escalating hardship creates dire consequences for individuals, communities and the UK as a whole, damaging the nation's health and holding back our economy. Over the last 18 months, the UK government has used one-off cost of living payments to help people on low incomes. But as the crisis deepens, questions are being raised as to the effectiveness of that approach. The UK government will set out its spending plans for next April, as you've mentioned in its autumn statement on on the 22nd of November. What measures would you like to see the government put forward? Any proposals you would specifically like them to avoid? And what's your view on the proposals suggested so far? So there's a bit of a wish list. Firstly, in terms of temporary support, will we see continuation of the cost of living payments that we've seen through the last year and a half or so? Those have not been entirely effective. They give people a spike of help, which goes up and it goes down, and then they're struggling again. But some help is better than none. So there's a question about what may happen there. And as part of that, things like the temporary support, like the household support fund, the autumn statement, hopefully will commit to renewing that after March and keeping it going and perhaps putting some more money in it. We are in a place at the moment where there are various different discretionary pots to help people in the government's approach and has been to give temporary localised support rather than raising the general rate of benefits permanently. So if you're going to do that, make it work and make it funded enough so it does work. So that's one thing. Saying that one of the things we would like to avoid is the government not uprating benefits by inflation. People say, well, inflation is dropping, but the point is that inflation is backward looking on the the cost of living uh, since the last uprating. So if it's not uprated by inflation, it means the real term value of benefits will fall further. And that proportion of people who can't make ends meet, I talked about earlier, will increase. Likewise, removing the freeze on the local housing allowance. So ONS recently said that private sector rents have risen at the highest rates since they started measuring it in 2016. So freezing of LHA means that there's a bigger gap between people who need help with their housing costs and actually what their housing costs are. So that's something we would want the government to think about. Now, we get that that's expensive, but the situation where tenants are using credit to pay their rent. And if when they run out of credit, they face a hair trigger of eviction through things like ground eight, which is mandatory eviction if you're two months in arrears. That creates a situation where more and more renting households, their insecurity will increase. So act now to stop a bigger problem of rent unaffordability. There's a long-standing issue in the benefit system about deductions for debt repayment. So one of the things that happens in the benefit system is if you say, for instance, you have a benefit overpayment or council tax arrears or, or energy arrears, there's a lot of debts that can be recovered from your benefits. But the way that they're recovered doesn't really take account of affordability. Now, everywhere else, In financial services, the FCA have rules about affordable debt recovery and the importance of lenders not leaving people destitute by virtue of debt repayments. The the benefit system doesn't quite have that. People can ask for an affordability assessment, but the default is to collect a fixed rate from people's benefit that is unaffordable and causes real hardship for people. So that's an, an easy thing the government could do in the autumn statement, which would just say, right, we're going to reduce the amount we take as a default from benefits to reduce pressure on household budgets. Similarly, we've seen a big rise in council tax debt and council tax debt is quite hard to deal with. 
and many councils will pass that debt out to bailiffs. Bailiffs are intrusive and they are expensive. People can do things like borrowing to try and deal with that debt, which pushes the problem elsewhere and makes it bigger. So there's two bits there. There's a bit about council tax support, which was a scheme that was cut as part of the austerity measures. Before it was cut, potentially you could get 100% of your council tax covered if you're on a low income. That is not now the case. And so many people, even if you have a very low income, will have a council tax liability that you just can't afford to pay. When we look at our clients who uh, their council tax debts are with bailiffs, we find that about half of them have negative budgets and about half of them or more have additional vulnerabilities. So the government's policy there is that you have tough enforcement. So if people just choose not to pay their council tax, you can't get away with it. Fair enough. But also it should be protecting people who are financially and otherwise vulnerable. The combination of the lack of council tax support and the use of bailiffs and the fact that bailiffs is the one part of debt collections and that is not regulated, unlike financial services, unlike utilities, are causing hardship and making debt problems worse. So we think there's a couple of things the government can do there. Look at council tax support would be a good thing to do because what it's doing is making a already regressive tax more regressive and actually impossible to pay for people on low income. So when there's talk about tax cuts, one of the most sensible things to do would be to ensure that the burden of council tax on very low income households doesn't mean that people are being pushed into sort of expensive, intrusive and potentially harmful enforcement. So they're some of the top of our list things, small things that could happen in the autumn statement that don't have a huge amount of cost. There are other things in terms of the adequacy of universal credit and other benefits and, and local housing allowance, which are perhaps more difficult and we'd like the government to look at. But if the fiscal pressures on government don't mean that there's nothing that can be done to reduce the pressures on households. Okay. And you've mentioned that the topics that you would like the government to focus on in the autumn statement are low cost. But I do question whether these changes that you've referenced would be politically possible under the current government. Have you discussed these suggestions with lawmakers in the current government and what has their response been? So lawmakers understand the argument, but there is an issue there about cost and fiscal pressure. So you asked me for a wish list and I gave it. Whether policymakers will go there is another question. So you're right. We understand that it's genuinely difficult. But the other side of that coin is that households are under exceptional financial pressure and there are human costs to people who are affected by cost of living and debt problems that can be passed on to local and central governments. They will ripple through the economy. If people's debt problems are meaning that it's harder for them to seek work or they're having to give up work because of the stress they're under or their productivity of work declines, that's a cost on everybody. So policymakers see a cost centre, but when benefits are spread across multiple departments and no one really owns it, they're not quite so good about thinking about, actually, if we spend some money here, it may save some hardship over there. So we have spoken to policymakers about a bunch of these things. You're right, it's difficult. Politically, it will be difficult for the foreseeable future. There's been a succession of enormous shocks to the UK economy since 2008, with the great financial crash, the pandemic, the cost of living crisis. We understand that. But those costs have put millions of households in a very vulnerable situation. And I think really our ask is for policymakers to think about both those things at the same time. So if you're thinking short term now about, well, we can't afford the support, but then the long term cost in terms of if rents go up and more people can't afford it, those long term costs will come and bite us in the end. So that's the dilemma policymakers are in. The least we can ask is that they think about both sides of that equation.
Okay, the CEO of the Financial Conduct Authority, the UK's market watchdog, Nikhil Ratti, has recently promised to foster an era of new enlightenment for financial inclusion in a bid to alleviate the strain of the ongoing cost of living crisis in the UK. What do you think about the FCA's approach to the crisis so far and how would you improve it if you had the power to do so? The starting point here is something that Nikhil Ratti said that as well as this enlightenment that the FCA doesn't have all the levers. So that's a really good point. A lot of the issues which are washing up at financial services are things that the FCA doesn't have the power to mandate firms to do. So going back 30 years or more, lawmakers, um, policymakers have seen financial services as an alternative to safety nets. And that kind of thinking that somehow financial services will fill the gap, where we are now has exposed that as not really working. So the FCA starting point is to understand that financial services cannot deal with all the problems that we're seeing now, and it needs a social policy response as well. Within that, we think actually the FCA has been doing a pretty good job. From our perspective, what we've seen in the FCA is be much more on the front foot about problems in the market. They've done things like the consumer credit card market study. They've done the mortgage market regulation. If all those things hadn't happened, we would be in a much worse place now than we are because the pressures that households are in would have been much worse if we didn't have stronger regulated mortgage and credit markets. So that's a good starting point, really. So the consumer duty, it comes from a recognition. The FCA would get on top of one problem, then something else will come up. So there was a whole bunch of different problems in financial services that the FCA rules were not by themselves addressing. Our take on that is the reason for that is one of the things that financial services can do, either by design or by not thinking about the problem hard enough, is it's very easy for people to take out credit rather than seeking help. Consumers have vulnerabilities. They have behavioural biases. They have constrained choices as well. So it's quite easy for a firm who doesn't think about it hard enough to exploit those vulnerabilities, biases and constrained choices, which may be profitable for the firm, but harmful for the consumer. So if you think of people being stuck in credit card debt for years, it's a product that in certain cases can be really harmful. So what the consumer duty should do, it's saying to firms, understand your clients, what happens to people from being fine using credit products to being someone who is in severe problem debt and look at where we can intervene to reduce harm at each stage. So that's the sort of thing that we would like to see the consumer duty do. If it's successful in doing that, and if the FCA can carry it through so that firms are looking at the experience of their customers and thinking about how they intervene better and how they design products better to stop potential inbuilt harm, then we're in quite a good place. We want financial service to be a source of good and not a source of harm. In the past, they've been both. Okay, so you believe the FCA is on the right track in terms of its approach to tackling the cost of living crisis, but it's important for politicians and policymakers in the UK to bear in mind that the FCA cannot resolve this issue alone. The financial services industry cannot resolve this issue alone, and they must give thought to the social policy reforms that you have already outlined. Yeah, and particularly sticking on, on the theme of credit, which is very important to us as a debt charity. The FCA can act to make sure that lenders aren't lending irresponsibly, where people can't afford to pay it, 
What it can't do is put money into people's pockets. And so that requires some other social policy interventions. There's a bit of crossover there. There are areas where social policy and regulatory policy are quite closely linked. So one of the things in Nikhil's speech is he mentions flood re, which is the thing where houses built on the floodplains couldn't get insurance. So the government came in, as it were, socialised the market by supporting insurers to support those homeowners. So there's a good point there that in things like credit it needs. Problem is, once you're in financial difficulty, you can get, as it were, turfed out of the mainstream credit sector because your credit score falls down, etc. High cost credit, you can't afford it, it can ignite a new cycle of debt problems. So for a long time in the UK, we've been talking about the need for affordable alternative credit. And that is still a live issue. You know, people like credit unions doing good work, but ultimately that needs to be expanded. FCA is getting rid of the harmful credit practices from the market. But if that creates a gap for low income consumers, then we need a more socialised, a safer market. And the government needs to think about how that might be capitalised. The government does still provide through the benefit system a degree of loans, but we need to scale up and understand how to meet the need of people who have credit needs. And if they go to commercial markets, particularly high-cost credit markets, it will expose them to debt and harm and the debt repayments will cause hardship. We can do better, but that's where it needs the government to intervene. So that's the kind of point at where the FCA can do what it does, but it needs social policy to do what it can do to ensure good outcomes that maybe the market by itself can't deliver. Okay, we are likely to have a general election next year. Labour is widely predicted to win that election. Should they, how would you like a Labour government to approach the cost of living crisis? And are there any reforms you'd specifically like a Labour government to avoid? So obviously we're a charity completely politically impartial, so I'll say the next government. We don't know who will win yet, but if at the next government, if there was a very high level manifesto ask, it would be you need to get us to a place where households are feeling secure about money, that they're able to afford the basics, that they're better able to understand economic shocks and life event shocks without harmful coping strategies and able to plan for the financial future. Those three things seem quite basic about people's financial lives. And we would be asking an next government to think much harder and more strategically about those things than they are at the moment. These are the things that tend to get lost in amongst departmental responsibilities and so on. More specifically, housing is at the centre of everything. We certainly heard Labour talking about housing in their conference, the desperate need for more social housing, but that's going to take time to build. So again, it's not going to work for a next government to think, well, we're going to build more houses. So in 10, 15, 20 years time, we won't be in the position that we are in terms of unaffordable rents and a dysfunctional housing market. People will need help through the transition. So we would like the next government to think very strongly about particularly private rented tenants, low income private rented tenants who are in the most vulnerable positions in terms of affordability and how to improve that. There are some interesting things in our data, a massively disproportionate number of women seek debt advice from step change. Understanding some of the reasons about that are things about access to labour market and how women particularly are single parents. So 26% of our clients are single parents against 6 or 7% of households. And that's all about how labour markets work, how childcare works. It's also about how things like benefits work as well, things like the two-child limit, which has been talked about a lot. So if you have more than two children, you don't get benefit support for them. All these things and more difficult things like long-term wage gaps between women and men 
the economic security of women, single parents and parents. That's something that in terms of a thematic priority, we need to focus on because this particular group are excluded or they're disproportionately vulnerable to poverty. Some more specific things. Government thinks about financial inclusion. What gets talked about a bit less is financial resilience. And that is about how people can protect themselves against shocks. So savings can be a very, very powerful way of armoring yourself and coping with a period of illness or unemployment without falling into debt. Government has a thing called the Help to Save scheme. We would like that to be continued. It provides match saving for low-income households. You save a pound, the government gives you 50p. So it helps low-income households build saving pots. But also simple things like workplace saving, encouraging people to save through their salaries. An organisation called Nest Insight did some pilots. Step Change was one of the organisations in the pilot of encouraging payroll saving. So people would opt in to a payroll saving scheme. Really good when people opted in, but only one, two percent of employees opted in. If you enable employees to do an opt out, like we are going to put a proportion of your wage into a savings scheme that's instant access. <laughs> you can get it. It's still your money. But unless you opt out, we'll do it. Saving rates of something like 40, 50 percent. So there are some things that government can do now or indeed after a general election to encourage households where they can to save and build up what we would call rainy day pots. So that if something happens, you've got something to draw on. It really makes you much less likely of falling into debt and much less likely, particularly than if you're using credit to cope with that shock. Some other things, looking at utility costs. Before the energy crisis, we had millions of people in fuel poverty. The energy price crisis has exposed that further. So there's been talk of things like social tariffs, looking to make sure we formalise better support across utilities for low-income households. That's something that has been on the table, but has not really moved forward yet. So we'd like the next government to look at about how social tariff schemes in energy, water and broadband can be made more permanent, to look at the effectiveness of them, to make sure they're easy to access. We would also ask the next government to look at a significant expansion of affordable credits, which would be something that probably won't happen before an election. Schemes in Australia of affordable credit schemes show that capital gets recycled, then it may not cost the government very much, but it may may have significant savings in reducing vulnerability to debt. So that's one of the things that we want the next government to do is look at the help for people who are going to fall into debt and people will continue to experience debt problems to make sure that people have got routes to deal with those debt problems in the least harmful way that helps them get back on their lives as soon as possible. Okay. Listeners to this podcast, which includes compliance, regulatory and legal and lobbying professionals at some of the city's largest financial services firms, will be thinking that the points you've raised very interesting but what can I as an individual do what can my firm do to both help their clients through the crisis and to ensure that their female clients aren't suffering more than their male clients with debt problems if you could perhaps list three action points that they could take what advice would you have yeah really good question the first thing is going back to consumer duty just look at your clients and understand what people are experiencing and then act on that understanding that's the most important thing the example I gave earlier of communications from creditors. Some simple changes to the way that you word communications. Put the help message at the top and then the grisly legal threatening stuff below it. So there are things you can do quite easily that will encourage people to engage, to seek help and to avoid harm. So first thing really is think about what you're doing at the moment. Think about your processes. Think about where you can make changes. The way you engage with people can make a lot of difference. When we spoke to clients about this, they talked about how communications for creditors really scared them, about often when they actually reached out and asked for help, they didn't get it. But they said that when they were offered help, when someone who was struggling spoke to someone at a lender, 
lender at a firm. And rather than talking about when are you going to repay us, the person at the firm said, you're stressed. We can see you're suffering. Focused on their well-being. What can we do to help? And then directed them to help. It was a game changer. And we heard that again and again and again. And that's relatively easy to do. Slightly more difficult, particularly in things like credit areas. There was a thing called the Woolard Review a few years ago, Chris Woolard, who did a review on the unsecured credit market. And there was a line in there about what can mainstream lenders do to lend to lower income households at lower price points. So one of the things we see with our clients who are women, one of the reasons they're disproportionately vulnerable to debt is that their incomes are consistently lower. They often have more childcare, more care costs. So when you're thinking about financial services and particularly credit, how do you build that into the design of your products to understand that people using them may be more vulnerable to debt, to understand how you structure those products in a way that might work with them. So that's something that people working in risk and compliance and product development in firms can think about, understand the needs of your customers and think about what to do to add the flexibility so that, that some people need to avoid them falling into debt. Perhaps the last thing, one of the things we see in debt is the FCA at the moment has a market study on credit information. So this is credit reporting. And one of the things with credit information is that we see at every stage of financial difficulties, people's worries about credit reporting are stopping them seeking help. So people don't talk to their lenders about their difficulties because they're worried about the impact of their credit score. People don't seek debt advice early because they're worried about the impact of their credit score. Even once we're talking to them about a debt solution, people are reluctant sometimes to take the step and act on that advice because worried about the effects on their credit score. So it's almost like you get shut out of the market and people will know that they will need credit in the future and they're worried about that. So what can lenders do at the moment? There's something there that we think that needs to be done, A, in terms of how they think about lending decisions and that point about better price points, but also how the credit reporting market works. And can we get to a place where in the way that firms record their forbearance is not so light and shade in terms of what it does to people's credit scores and future access to credit, and also where people are recovering from debt, repaying their debts through something like a debt management plan where people repay their debts over time, that that doesn't exclude people from financial services like credit for a long time. There are other areas, the FCA has recently talked about people struggling with insurance payments. We certainly know from our clients that very low percentages of our clients, when they come to advice, have insurance payments for things like contents, for things like life, for things like income. The only thing they have is motor because they have to. It's the first thing that people stop paying because they can't afford to. So in that market, there's a bit there about what can firms do to understand financial difficulties and help people so that they don't lose important cover because they can't afford to meet premiums. There's a bunch of things that firms can be doing now to think about how house households are struggling through their cost of living crisis and what they can do to help. Okay. You mentioned Chris Willard, who's the former FCA CEO. And it all seems to start with a constructive industry-wide drive to understand what's actually happening at the client level. Yeah, that's the root of all of it, really. Understand what your products and services are doing, understand how they affect your consumers and act where they're not working well. So looking at that data and saying, oh, look, our bank charges are disproportionately being affected and there is a high deprivation. Maybe we need to rethink what we're doing. So you're right, that's where it all starts. One of the things that often happens in policy, so we had the cost of living crisis, it's on the front pages every day. 
government intervenes with help, firms intervene with forbearance. When inflation goes down a bit, cost of living's off the headlines, and firms' practices drift back to where they were before. The thing that worries me there is that the combination of pandemic and cost of living crisis will create a long shadow, and that millions of households will be in that shadow and will try and cope the best they can for years and years, but the harm will build. When we talk to our clients, we find that some people have been struggling with financial difficulties for 10 years, coping the best that they can until eventually exhausted, they fall over. So let's be honest about where we are now. And let's be honest about the pressure that households are under. And actually, when inflation falls and interest rates fall, that's not going to make it all better by itself. We need to maintain that focus, particularly on people who have fallen into debt and ensure that the help is ongoing so that this shadow of the cost of living crisis and the pandemic doesn't go on for years and years and years. Okay, so now is the time to act. This isn't a can to keep kicking down the road. Beautifully put. Okay. Thank you, Peter. You've offered up several action points and it will be interesting to see to what extent the suggestions that you've raised are reflected in the autumn statement in late November. But in the meantime, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.